So here we are for the Conscious Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Ferenga, and I'm founder of Mindful Pathway. I invite leaders who are doing something particularly radical or interesting with the way they lead their people. They give us a unique insight into their philosophy, as well as how this plays out practically day to day. This month, I welcome Daniel Holm. Daniel is a leading expert in artificial intelligence. He's the CEO of Satalia, a global company that provides AI-inspired products and solutions. He's the director of UCL's Business Analytics MSc, where he holds his doctorate, and he has a particular passion for how AI can help solve the world's biggest social problems, to help us all live happier lives. I've been impressed just how radical his leadership is and the journey he's been on. I started by asking him how he got to where he is now. I've always been interested in what it means to be human, and uh, naturally you... uh start to ask questions about consciousness and uh, and all this kind of stuff. So from a very early age, I've been interested in what it means to um, to build conscious machines uh, and therefore um, uh, understand about um, artificial intelligence. And uh, so I started my degree at UCL uh, 20 years ago now in artificial intelligence and then fell in love with um, academia and the subject and went on to do a PhD in artificial intelligence a few postdocs in that area as well, and then spun out a company um, 10 years ago uh, that provides um, AI solutions for companies. And for the past 10 years, I've been going on an entrepreneurial journey trying to um, create a successful AI company that has the biggest positive impact that it can on the world. Mm. Sounds quite a feat. <laughs> well, you only live once, so <laughs> I, uh, I and I like solving problems, and uh, we have lots of very big problems that we're going to be facing as a, as a species over the coming several decades and uh, and it's going to be an interesting challenge to try to, to, to address them. Mm. And because you sort of scaled a company to kind of kind of medium-sized company can you tell us a little bit about that journey and how you went from kind of small and using I guess some freelancers to really like um, really getting big big growth that you... Yeah so like like many companies that spin out of a university um we were ahead of the game. We had a technology, we had a solution looking for a problem, whereas, um, whereas you know, many companies are born servicing a, a problem. And, uh, and so for the first five years of the company, I was trying to understand where we could apply um, this, the, this technology that, that I developed or I was interested in and um, uh, kept myself alive through, um, through my own savings and through uh, making money everywhere I, I could. I lived in Silicon Valley for a few years where I was paid by the, the British government actually to go and learn about how they innovate, how they take technology mm-hmm. from their best universities and scale them into businesses. So um, being living in Silicon Valley and doing that whole entrepreneurial um, thing over there was was really educational and was that uh, like an incubator in itself or was it more of a there was there was 30 people over a course i think two or three years that were chosen by the the government here to go and essentially be educated in uh, kansas city actually Uh, there's a a place called the kaufman foundation in kansas city which is one of the entrepreneurial think tanks in america and uh, and then as part of that program which is a six-month program 
uh, we got to tour Stanford and Harvard, MIT, Berkeley, all of the leading universities, so spending time in Boston, um, learning about how they do technology transfer. And as part of the program, um, you were also placed in uh, an innovative organization and I was placed in Cisco in Silicon Valley. I really wanted to be in Silicon Valley because I felt that, that way, that's where um, the, this technology that I developed could have a, a first um, customer. And uh, my, 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 my task within Tisco, uh, Cisco was to build an innovation program for them. Cisco had uh, 60,000 employees and uh, the idea was, could you um, unlock the creative potential of those employees to come up with next generation IP mm. that they could patent and commercialize? And, uh, and so uh, having a kind of very engineering academic background, I then got thrust into the world of business and innovation and but creativity. innovation internally, so Internal with innovation. the kind of elephant of a indeed of a corporate. Indeed. How's that? It was really, it was really fascinating because I obviously also learned about open innovation and different types of uh, of, of innovation and uh, and um, how how companies large and small can work with ecosystems and all of this kind of stuff. So, and it was actually around the time of the um, the uh, the dot com crash. Uh, so, two thousand and eight, 2009, 2010. It's a very interesting time and, and transition. And um, I, I, uh, I started to uh, really um, appreciate how complex it, it is to take technologies, to take innovations and actually have them uh, have an impact on the world. And, um, and, and um, I got a chance to kind of pitch in front of investors on Sand Hill Row and, and uh, we were in an incubator actually in Silicon Valley as, as well. Um, and uh, but I was never I was never really aligned, I think, um, internally with this this idea of getting investment, scaling businesses, making a load of money for VCs, and and and, and going from there. It never really sat well with me. So uh, I uh, and it's not until over the past four or five years has I, have I understood why it didn't sit well with me and and, and why I wanted to try to adopt an an alternative model because I'm sure that I could have scaled Satalia much, much larger than what it is now and I'm sure I could have created more value for myself but I would have been creating, I would have created an organisation that I I, I felt is contradictory to my values and also potentially um, uh, has not the biggest positive impact uh, Mm. that we could have on on, on the planet. So I'm taking a kind of a long game approach and uh, and, and I'm thinking of of Satalia and and my position in this company in in terms of 30, 40, 50 years, and not seven, eight years and flipping it. And And and, going to the design. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) So for me, um, Satalia is a vehicle to, um, to have the biggest possible impact that I can have and, and work with incredible people. I really believe that with a small group of people, you can do amazing things. And I'd like to essentially foster um, an ecosystem within Satalia about, uh, where, where amazing uh, talent can, can, can create the biggest pos- possible positive impact. So um, we, we, I, I kept the company alive for the first five years by, by taking every opportunity I, I could have at solving problems for companies. So I was very much an independent consultant, pulling in my network of, of friends and colleagues where, where we needed to deliver on projects. And then around 2015, um, we, we landed a, a big um, client, which was Tesco, and uh, that then gave us um, a runway, stable revenues to be able to hire, to be able to um, uh, um, yeah to start to form the foundations of the company. 
sort of realistically, the company has really only been around for five years, uh, and uh, and we have demonstrated that we can solve very big difficult problems for companies using new technologies, AI, machine learning, all of that kind of stuff. And uh, and um, so we, we so what Satalia does is that we, we, we provide these services for companies solving problems that have never been solved before. We look to productize those solutions. So we, we build innovations for companies and then we look to productize them uh, because that generates recurring revenue. Uh, but it also gives us an opportunity to take those solutions and, and try to figure out could they have a, a, a bigger social impact. So mm-hmm. you solve one problem for one company, can it be applied elsewhere? And and I guess the, the third thing is that I'm trying to to grow Satalia in a relatively unique way because we, we don't have any managers, we don't have any fixed hierarchies, we have no KPIs, nobody has had to tell anybody else what to do in the company. We're, we're, uh, we're, we operate very much like a swarm and, and we're, we're only about 100, 120 people at the moment, but my, my plan, my goal is to try to scale that swarm to a planet. I want, I want to try and create a planet where everybody has the freedom to create innovations, to be able to contribute to those innovations and be remunerated fairly. Uh, and, I, and I think that in Satali, we're designing this architect, architecture, we're, we're creating this organizational design that allows us to operate like a swarm and uh, and hopefully tap into and unlock the creative capacity of, of more and more people around the planet. Mm. Yeah, and I know we've talked about this before and it's really interesting to hear about um, the way you lead. And um, would you kind of break down this a bit for the audience, like about this kind of swarm star it sounds like a fair amount of um or an, maybe an extreme amount of autonomy and um yeah can you talk a little bit more in detail about what goes on and this is in the range of and also related to your personal philosophy yeah. around this so i guess um i uh, i am relatively unemployable in the sense that i i can't join the club <laughs> yeah, yeah i can't i can't do anything that uh i can't just be told to do something without really understanding why mm-hmm. and uh and i wouldn't want to impose that on, on on people that that i employ so philosophically i want to give people as much information as i can to uh, including give them a, giving them a strong vision that we hopefully all align on and then they can make decisions that that then um, align with their own values the values of vision the vision of the organization without being told told what to, to do and um, I also think that uh, the traditional hierarchical structures are not very adaptable uh, to change Hmm. And uh, where where swarm swarm type organisations can I think adapt more quickly to change, and for me the definition of intelligence um, is it comes from actually there's a very good definition of intelligence which is goal directed adaptive behaviour, and then the the key word in that definition is the word adaptive. So for me intelligence and adaptivity adaptation is is, is the same thing, and so the question is how do you build an organisation an, an organisational structure that can adapt to a changing environment, to a rapidly changing environment. And um, and, and and I believe that these these swarm-like organizations are, are, are much more adaptable. And, and, and that, in fact, it might sound like it's chaos or it might, it might sound like it's um, you're kind of free to do whatever you want, but actually it's very strict. Uh, in, a, in a biological swarm, um, if you're a flock of birds or, or a school of fish, you have essentially local information and you have a set of rules that you adhere to. Um, and... Um, that that in, enables the swarm to be able to to, to operate and uh, and so the, there are pr- structures and processes and a, a, an organization like Satalia or any organization that wants to operate like a swarm um, human organization is actually much more complicated than a biological swarm in a mm-hmm. biological swarm 
no individual can make a decision that destroys the whole swarm. Mm. Uh, whereas in a in a company, one person could do a rogue tweet. They could send some data to a competitor. The, they can make decisions that can bring the entire organizations to it to it to its knees. So um, it's uh, it's much more complex than a biological a biological swarm, and uh, and therefore you do need to have structures and processes in place. Um, but we just need to make sure that 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 those structures and processes don't restrict people, but actually enable people to operate and make good decisions. Mm. And uh, it's a subject I'm really interested in. And uh, we uh, we think that we can enable this structure through using technology. And uh, I can give some examples of that if that would be Yeah, useful. I was going to say, actually, something practical around that. Um, I guess maybe like a day-to-day thing that people are experiencing in there. Because if they haven't, they haven't got a line manager, it sounds like, you know, there's... Um, we did talk a little bit about and talk a little bit about some of the kind of senior team and how that might operate, but but how does that work practically? Yeah, so inside the company at the moment, we 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 structured our communications, our email structures, our document structures, um, our, our Slack, all of this kind of stuff in 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 a, in a relatively um, in a very structured way actually, and uh, that allows us to collect data across the organization, passive data, email data, all of this kind of stuff, uh, and uh, connect it all together. So we have really good visibility into what people are working on, how they're working, who they're collaborating with. And uh, that, that has created our, our, our graph or our, our, our data lake of, um, of, uh, of, of information that we can then start to use to identify people's skills, identify people's relationships between each other, between decisions. And, and I guess one example is, and we've changed this now, but um, but a few years ago, we uh, asked everybody to make public recommendations for their salary. So everybody would publicly declare what they want to be paid. Um, and then everybody would then vote on whether those salaries should be reduced or increased or kept the same. And we would weight uh, somebody's um, vote based on, um, based on their proximity to that person, how closely they've worked with them, how knowledgeable they are about the domain. Um, and so you could think of it very much as a weighted democracy. Mm, so, so you're not making any decisions on salary? No. They were... uh, yeah, I mean, I did because I voted on people's salaries, but my, but my votes might have been less than an intern's votes for somebody. Okay, so you had equal weighting. Yeah, uh, it, could, it, could, it could have been less than uh, equal. So, so it could have been an intern had more more votes than, than me for a, somebody's salary because they worked more closely with them and they were in a better position to make that decision. Mm. And what we're doing is we're trying to take that, that principle of a weighted democracy and apply it to everything. And, and we're still very early in this journey, but the question is, how do you identify the right person or the right group of people to make a decision uh, based on their digital footprint and then empower them to make that decision so make them accountable, make them responsible? And uh, we want to apply that to everything. And, and, and historically, you would probably have managers and you would have pr- certain types of structures and processes to to, to, to keep keep people within within their their their, their boundaries, um, but here what we're trying to do is use technology to um, to keep people within their boundaries, but also and enable them to make decisions that traditionally they might not be able to make in a, in a more hierarchical organization. Uh, and uh, so um, and we we're trying to apply that to feedback, to career development, to resourcing. All of these decisions that need to be made across a company can be made in this decentralized way. Mm-hmm. And you talked about boundaries because this is kind of an interesting thing. You know, children need boundaries and adults need boundaries. Like, well, I guess as an innovative company, you want to stretch people or you want them to think outside the box, far beyond where maybe they have been boxed in the past. 
Um, but yet you, you, you mentioned boundaries mm. as necessary. Can you say a bit more about that? Yeah, so um, I'm trying to think of some some r- recent examples. Um, th- there, are so, there are some people things that you don't know that you don't know, and uh, and when when you give people freedom to make decisions, um, if they if they don't have certain um, pieces of information, they, they 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 might make bad decisions, and you see this in some organisations where, for example, they create. Um, they give people like a two thousand pound training budget. So here you you speak of you can spend two thousand pounds each year on training or a thousand pounds equipment budget. And I guess what they're trying to do there is that they're trying to give people freedom to be able to make choices, but they've created a, ba- a boundary. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and we have some of these um, examples within Satalia, but when it comes to things like training and pay, uh, we are trying to adopt a principle of. Co- complete freedom so how can you give people total freedom to be able to make those decisions uh so to be able to spend as much as they want on training and things like that um with um without having these these fixed boundaries and uh and and that's really the tension um is how do you give people total um, total freedom but enable make sure that people don't make these um these existential um decisions that, that that can bring the company to, to, to its knees. So we do have some boundaries, but the idea is that we need to actually remove those and we can remove those through guidelines, through various other things as well. Um, uh, there, there are some, I'm trying to think of some other examples that we've experienced recently um, where people have felt like they know um, about a particular domain, but they don't. And then again, they've, 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 they've started to make decisions that, they're, that really they're not capable of, of making. Um, but the, the point is, is that by by capturing this data, by monitoring it, we can identify those problems and then we can solve them. Mm. So we, we treat Satalia very much like a, an experimental playground. And the, the default is let's give people as much freedom as possible, as much transparency as possible, and then work backwards. Mm. And what's the benefit of that? What do you see in terms of you know, staff motivation or kind of enjoyment at work or or maybe you know innovation or things like this yeah so i think there are the benefit is that is that people do make better decisions because they have access to information do you think the main better decisions yeah absolutely and um there uh, there is also a reduction of politics because you don't have one person um making the call over another because they've got more power than 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 them um so i would like to think that we have zero politics sounds wonderful i'm sure it's not true (laughs) but uh um uh, but um it it also um helps us to not have a a, egos within the company as well and and really we're just focusing on how do we make the best possible decisions and and not what's necessarily benefiting me me as an individual um so so uh, and so i should say that that it's very tempting to use technology to use data all of this kind of stuff um because for technology's sake but we are really trying to augment um the technology with organizational psychology human psychology Mm -hmm. so we're a big fan of creating or trying to create socially safe companies it's very difficult for people to make public recommendations for their salaries for example uh, the benefit is that if you're making recommendations for your salaries, and, and, and this is a typically, this is an example that we often use, which is we had a, a number of females re- re- making recommendations for their salaries where they were clearly undervaluing themselves. Now, in a more tradition, traditional organization, a manager might be very happy at that because that manager can then decide to spend that budget somewhere else because mm. somebody's undervaluing themselves and therefore they don't have to pay them as much. But in, in this company, because because your, your, your salary is transparent and, and because people have the 
ability to say you need to increase your salary, it meant that a number of females actually salaries increased dramatically because they were undervaluing themselves and that um, that bias was identified by the, 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 the crowd and it was solved. Mm. And, uh, and and so so by, by unlocking and making transparent the data, um, and by working with organizational psychologists, the idea is that we create um, a less biased, more fair, more safe organization. Mm. i say more about safety. That's kind of a... Safety, yeah. So we, we are currently um, redefining our values, our qualities and principles and all of this kind of stuff. And when, when we're designing structures, uh, processes and structures in the company, we... Um, this, these are big words, but we are trying to make sure that they adhere or align with, with, with four words. One is freedom. Does this give people freedom to make decisions? And, and if you have a training budget of £2,000, actually you're not giving people total freedom. You're, you're limiting them. Um, the second one is equality. And again, if you give somebody a training budget of £2,000, £2,000 in the UK might be very different to £2,000 in India. So therefore you're creating something that's unequal. Uh, and so that's the second principle. The third, the third principle is, is safety and how to ensure that, that people have the right amount of accountability than they do authority. And what I mean by that is that if you have lots of authority and no accountability, then you can do bad things and, and not be held accountable. If you've got um, uh, lots of accountability and no authority, then bad, bad things can be taken, you can be taken advantage of. And so we are trying to figure out how do we create the right balance between accountability and authority. And also we're trying to make sure that, that when we create structures that people's dignity is protected at work, so you're not being told what to do, for example, mm. and that you're, you have the opportunity for your dignity to, be, to, to grow. So safety is, is a really, really important. Uh, and the, the, the fourth and final one is around justice. So where there is a malicious behavior or negligence or mistakes, you know, the, the, these things do happen. How do we make sure that, um, that, that, that it's, there's a fair process to reward people or to, to help people to develop themselves? Mm. And thinking about your kind of system and your swarm and this the group of people that work together, how did you come up with those values? Was that something that you wanted to lead on or yeah so actually i've been spending i spent two years now really thinking about our purpose and uh and and the reason why i've been thinking about this is because uh i'm not just trying to think about a purpose that works for satali i'm trying to think about something that would scale to a planet which i know sounds a <laughs> you bit talked about this i'm interested uh, in this yeah, planet um, uh, a little bit ambitious but um i have uh so I've been trying to work out what should the values be for humanity, which uh, which is you know philosophers have been trying to tackle this question for for a long time, and uh, uh, kind of like the Ten Commandments. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So I, I, I so I've looked at um, I've looked at the religious text. Um, I've looked at um, various different ideologies, Stoicism, Taoism, or Buddhism, humanism, all of these um, these different um, uh, ideologies and, and doctrines. If you if you look at all of the corporate values of the top five hundred companies, you'd be surprised how similar they are. Almost every other corporation has integrity in their values. They'll have teamwork and innovation and all of this kind of stuff. And you can imagine how much money all of these organizations have thrown at consultants to try and come up with those those values. And, and if you look across them all, they look they look very similar. And uh, and and, and I, I my hypothesis, um, have, having read a lot of philosophy and a lot of these ideologies is that is that you could group these or categorize these different um, 
ideas into four four parts into four four groups so the the first group is around creating broad wisdom so how, how do you become wise as a human being uh, how do you know yourself know thyself is on the the the, the temple of adelphi but um uh, and, and that's knowing yourself as, as as a broad human being and understand about sociology and psychology and all that kind of stuff so that that's one set of um of uh, of, of um concepts the second set of concepts is around um be, becoming intelligent or, or creative in a particular domain, uh, which is which is actually quite mm. subtle, but how do I develop a skill? Like mastery. Mastery, mm. exactly, exactly. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be a skill that's valued by society, because if I was a data scientist 3,000 years ago, it would not be valued by society. So, but but, but how do you, how do you, is, and, and if you link these two together, so you're kind of classic T-shaped person, your you're broad wisdom, and then, and then a, a deeper set of skills. So how can you get to the point where you are, so good at something that you can create that you can push the boundaries in some aspect of humanity um so the first two um uh, these concepts relate to you as an individual uh the second two relate to your interactions with other people and this is going to sound obvious but the, the third one and i prefer i prefer the the phrase from the the um the hippocratic oath which is um first do no harm or it could also be interpreted as don't do to other people that you can do to yourself all of this kind of stuff mm. so it's essentially don't be negative don't do things that are bad. Mm. Uh, and the, the the fourth one is the kind of opposite of that, which is do do things that are good and or live beyond yourself. How, how do you contribute positively to society beyond the needs of yourself? So um, so these are actually four qualities that we have identified across these different um, ideologies. And, uh, and, and these are the, the four qualities that we look to try to cultivate within people in Satalia uh, and uh, so, so so that's one one set of, uh, of things that we're thinking about when we're, when we're thinking about how do we design structures and systems uh, we, we think about equality and freedom and and justice and, and safety um, and uh, but but all of this stuff culminates into a, a purpose and our purpose is actually to 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 create a world where everybody has the opportunity to live, to live beyond themselves so we want, we want to create a world where everybody is born into a world where they don't have to worry about feeding themselves. They don't have to worry about shelter and all of this kind of stuff. That all of that, all of those needs are met, and that they have then the ability, if they want to, to be able to contribute positively to society. That the happiest that I've ever been is when I'm I'm helping others, when I'm mm. when I'm making others um, be better. And uh, and um, I also believe that we shouldn't. I, I used to believe that we should have an objective function for humanity. So we should say, for example, let's minimize, I don't know, suffering. Uh, suffering yeah. <laughs> let's, let's maximize our people's access to happiness. Let's maximize mm. our ch- chance of survival. And, and it, the reason why I thought we needed to have an objective is because historically I thought that humans are not very good at thinking of the long term. We're not thinking, we're not thinking about our survival in the next hundred years and protecting ourselves from meteorites and all this kind of stuff. But when I really take a step back and think about the people that have become very wealthy, uh, independently wealthy, and uh, the people I think have developed that wisdom, you do see them investing in, in the future mm. of humanity. And, 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 uh, and so my, my feeling right now is that, is that if we can make as many people in the world as possible uh, to, 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 to give them opportunity to be wiser, to develop their skills, and to contribute to humanity, they will work out how to solve these big existential threats that we're going to be experiencing over the coming decades. Mm. Wow, so that's quite a process you've been through in terms of your own kind of 
philosophical development and then thinking about the individuals in the company and the wider purpose and this living beyond yourself. Mm. Mm. Yeah, how, yeah. how does it... How does it resonate? Is it so? so uh, especially you, in a, and also, especially in just recognizing that your firm is geographically spread. Mm. So how do you? Um, how are you um, proliferating? How are you? So we. Uh, it's a really good question, and because one of the biggest challenges that you have in, in a company is tying the big purpose, the big P purpose, mm. with the things that you're doing every day. How does you know sweeping the floor or fixing this bug in some code? How do these things? tied together and one of the things yeah exactly one of the things i've started to realize particularly from a leadership perspective is um so i'm i'm intrinsically motivated to try and make things better i think i I think that i i get out of bed in the morning and i want to try and contribute somehow positively to, to society and i'm sure that other people do too but um i uh i i've i i historically i feel like I've assumed that everybody feels like that. <laughs> and uh, what uh, what's interesting is that more recently I've been asking CEOs, I've been asking leaders of companies, what do you do, right? What, what do you do on a day-to-day basis? And the, the general uh, comment that comes back is they spend their time traveling the world trying to keep people excited about what they're doing, about their mission. And, uh, and that makes me sad. For kind one of yeah. yeah, it makes me sad because um, it makes it makes me sad. First of all, because um, I would love for people to be intrinsically motivated, and they wouldn't need to necessarily have somebody to to remind them of the the big problems that we're facing in the world and and, and why we're doing what we're doing. Um, but um, and it, but it also makes me happy because it's something that I think that I I can do, and I, I started to realize. My role as a, as a leader is, is to, do, to do more of that and not just to expect that people are intrinsically motivated. Um, ideally, we, we would have the self-organizing system where everybody's contributing in that, in that way. But I am really starting to appreciate now the importance of influencers, the importance of, of leadership. And not, not that it's different or, or not that it's special uh, or more special than a software engineer. It's just a different set of skills. And, uh, and and it, so it shouldn't be lauded above any other type of skills. Um, but it, it's something that I'm thinking about. How do we build into our organizational structure? How do we identify influencers? How do we empower those influencers? Within the company. Within the company mm-hmm. and without but without creating fixed um, hierarchies. Because I guess mm-hmm. historically you would have um, uh, the, the leaders or the influencers would be people that would climb up the, 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 the hierarchy. And I think companies are realizing now actually that, that many of the people across the organization can be influencers and uh, mm. the, the challenge is how you empower them. Um, so that, that's a journey that I'm going on. And, and if I was being completely frank, it's a journey that I'm now starting with, with, with Citalia this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's taken me two years to form this stuff and of course I've had dialogues with many people in the company so they have a general feeling about what's going on but it's taken me this long to actually consolidate what we do and synth- synthesize it into this um, into this in, uh, this structure um, that actually this week I'm going to be writing a, a blog article about so oh, it's, it's, good, it's, good, it's good timing yeah and it's I mean you talked before to me about um, the kind of gut instinct and your kind of conscious process around some of these Decisions. It sounds like you haven't wanted to be rushed over this stuff because it's super important. Yeah. And how have you how have you followed your? Um, it sounds like instinct, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. Yeah, yeah. But, um, instinct is a is a it's a funny, funny word because because it's only in my early thirties that I 
started to realize that a lot of people have a voice in their head and they're not the, like the schizophrenics or anything like that, but they, 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 have a, they have a narrative or they have multiple voices in their head and their, their heads are very busy, very noisy. Uh, and, um, and this might come as a surprise, but, and I, and I've met a few people that, that, that also have this, but, um, I, I don't have a voice in my head. So my, my head is empty. I feel, I feel present. I feel, uh, uh, still, I feel connected to everything around me right now, and but there's nothing going on in my head. So I, there's no voice that says like, "Oh, you missed that." Yeah, no. Or, or should I say this thing? And I've started to understand that there are certain phrases that people have in their in their mm. mind. That I think probably you don't have a running commentary. No, I don't have a running commentary, and I yeah. can imagine that that must be incredibly exhausting. Yeah, it's basically, I, why I picked up meditation. Yeah, <laughs> indeed, indeed. And, and actually, I, I used to teach. Uh, uh, I used to be. I used to do martial art that had a meditative component, and I never understood. The idea of emptying your, your mind it didn't make any sense to me until my my, my early thirties, and th- so so I think that has en- enabled me to 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 n- not necessarily hold myself back um, when when making decisions and, and things like that because I feel like I'm I make decisions with my body I don't make my decisions with my mind I make it with my body. Tell us what that means. Uh, it, it means that uh, I I I feel the world around me and then. I, my, my body moves and I say stuff and I can hear myself saying stuff, but there's nothing much in between. I don't have visibility into, into what, 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 what's being processed and the decisions that are being made. So that, and I think that's a good thing because it means that I think that I can make decisions quickly. Uh, maybe I can take more things into account. Uh, people often comment on how much I can hold in my head by I don't have anything in my head, but there's something obviously something going on in there. But the counter to that, the problem with that is that if if um, if I have a decision that needs to be made, uh, I have to wait. I have to wait for it to <laughs> okay. come out of the darkness. I can't I can't force myself to make a decision, uh, and so um, that's why it's taken two years to to form all this stuff. I've absorbed as much information as I as I could. And then what's happened is that's coalesced and it, it's crystallized into into these these concepts. And in, interestingly, we're, we're going to in Satalia try to use natural language processing. So we're trying to use AI to to, to look at all of these different texts uh, to see if also it identifies these these common structures. Common yeah. Uh, so we can see whether my um, my uh, the results of my analysis, my research, aligns with what the AI can can find. Um, but it, it, it's also frustrating for my team as well because they do, they do want me to make decisions and, and I can't. I just have to stare at a wall and wait mm-hmm. for, it, for the decision to come from the darkness and sometimes it doesn't. Mm. And it's interesting because I guess the, the converse to that I'm just thinking about, the normal business world, is that um, the people are forced to make decisions quickly and forced to um, produce, deliver, and no doubt you have deadlines in your company. But... Um, but that must be quite freeing to better take your time. It's, it's partly freeing, but uh, but it's also obviously frustrating. But I I have an optimization background. My, my background is in both machine learning. So uh, my PhD was trying to model the brain of a bumblebee, and then I realised that um, that there was a bigger problem that we needed to solve in the area of symbolic AI and and uh, an area of, of mathematics called, called optimization. And uh, an optimization is where you have an objective. You have you have something that you want to try to achieve. And then you have all of these different constraints and levers that you have to pull to try to achieve the objective. And in optimization, there is always a tension between 
the quality of the solution and the amount of time that you spend. The longer you spend, the ultimately the, the higher the quality of the solution. Um, and uh, and I think that that's probably how my, my brain works is that, um, is that if I am forced to make a decision, uh, then if there is a deadline, then assuming that there's a decision somewhere, there's a, there's a solution somewhere inside of me, it will come. Mm. But um, but it might not feel like it's the best solution. And if I could spend longer on on, on processing that, then I might come up with a better solution. Better solution. Uh, but there are scenarios where I can't I can't manifest a solution because there isn't one. Okay. And in in the optimi- in the world of optimization, um, it, um, this uh, I won't bore you with the details. But uh, when you're solving optimization problems, sometimes it takes a while to even find a part of the search space that is a solution and then um, and then you then try and improve that solution over time but uh, mm. so there, there are some parallels yeah. and, and I'm just thinking about you know you talked about this quite sort of significant state that you're in yeah. most of the time all the time where you feel quite connected yeah. and where decisions come to you you don't have a running commentary in your yeah. life or any kind of negative voice what do you think has contributed to that uh, so I think that uh, I uh, my upbringing probably has so uh, that I'm I'm very started to become very interested in a um, a concept in psychology called attachment theory, which is um, about how the upbringing as, as an infant affects your relationship styles, your personality as a, as an adult, and uh, and I think uh, I don't know how true this statistic is, but sixty percent of the population apparently are um, have attachment disorders, so they are dysfunctional at forming, maintaining. Um, stable relationships, which is which is one of the reasons probably why. I no think wonder that, in the, this mess. Yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. Uh, and uh, and so, um, but the, there's also a possibility that as an infant, I was not neglected as an infant, but I was kind of left on my own. I was fed and I was housed and all of this kind of stuff, but I wasn't, I guess, cared for in a way that um, that uh, that you might see a traditional family uh, parents care for you. So I was kind of left and uh, I didn't have anybody speaking to me about you know how does that landscape make you feel or what do you think about this and uh, maybe there are I think they called mirror neurons that haven't haven't developed or I I um, I, I my, my psychologist actually my uh, says that um, 96% of your brain activity is your unconscious mind and about 4% of your brain activity is kind of trying to make sense of what's going on in your unconscious mind and I think that for me that 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 four percent is is a half a percent I have very very little visibility to what's going on in my conscious mind and it's probably to do with um, how I was um, raised as, as, as an infant Hmm. So you're talking about maybe empathy or connecting with other people's emotions. So I, I feel I, this is the problem. Is I, I not problem, but I really feel empathic. So I feel like okay. I yeah. Because I was going to say you seem kind of sensitive to other people's feelings, yeah. and you want people to you know exceed their potential and be yeah. happy at work and all that. So yeah, as I said, I feel like I make decisions based on how I, how I feel, and uh, and I um, I feel I can I can feel the people around me, and I can feel. Um, uh, I feel connected to things, so uh, I, I I I do feel that, like I am I'm, I'm empathic. Mm. Um, but it almost seemed like what you were saying was that you had because you hadn't received the same same care, maybe that, that you didn't have the same mirror neurons, which is is you know being able to kind of receive and reflect other people's. Yes, yeah, it may, maybe mirror neurons not the the right the right thing, but um, but uh, the the. the 
I might be characterized as an, an avoidant dismissive, which is one of the, uh, if, you've, if you've been neglected as an infant and let's like, say you're crying and things like that and your parents haven't come and, and, care, and comforted you, then what, what tends to happen is that you become um, uh, self-sufficient. You, you can't rely on a caregiver okay. to, to care for you. So, yeah. so you have to deal with it yourself. And so, and, and I suspect that most kind of entrepreneurial types are people that have had to become self-sufficient as an infant and that what also comes with that is, is is a lack of empathy and other things but i'd like to think that i do have empathy um the, the opposite of this is what they call a, a, i think it's um an anxious preoccupied where uh maybe your parents have been very hot and cold with you and so sometimes they've given you love and sometimes they haven't given you love and what it does is it creates a, an anxious state where you don't know what to do to make people love you mm. and that manifests itself as being jealous as a, as a in relationships and things like that so um so it's it's amazing actually that how how uh, um, much of a template there exists with respect to how you're brought up as a, as, a, as an infant um but i'm still uh, on a journey of trying to understand that myself depends. yeah interesting journey yeah. and do you do you can kind of consider this with your um your teams and the people and and how they how they feel what type of person have you gone to any lengths to get people to kind of understand each other and kind of um, grow, I guess. So right now, uh, it's, I've been mainly focusing on how do we get Satalia to um, to become sustainable, financially sustainable, and and have a good reputation in the, in the market. But we're constantly thinking about about how to make sure that the well being of organisation is the best it can be. And uh, and as I said previously, um, my my I because I'm intrinsically motivated, and because I don't rely or need to have somebody to say to care for me in fact i resist mm-hmm. uh, and reject care if anybody tries to make me a cup of tea or to try and do something for me it's something oh, that geez, actually i know yeah, i know, really I, tough, yeah. I, know I, I, I find it very difficult to receive care from okay, people yeah. um and so i have assumed i think that other people don't need care they don't need but what i'm realizing now is actually people do need to be thanked and they do want to feel like they are cared for and, and this kind of stuff and uh, and I'm trying to make sure that my personality doesn't have a negative impact on, 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 on the culture of the company. So the kind of pastoral support yeah. you're working yeah, on. Yeah, exactly and uh, as it happens I think if you ask most people in Zitalia they're, they're very very happy so um, I'd like to think something's we're doing something right uh, but I do think that the personality or the culture of a, of a company is intrinsically linked to the um, the uh, the personality of of, of the, the the leadership or the or the, the founders, mm. and and where I think companies have deficiencies, those deficiencies are most likely in in in, in, in the leadership, mm. and uh, so I need to and want to make myself the best that I can be, because that will hopefully mean that that Satalia is the best it can be. Mm. And just briefly, how do you do that? Uh, so I going back to those four qualities actually. So I uh, I. I try to understand myself. I try to understand the world. I try to be good at something. Uh, and uh, I try to be wise enough to not do harm to others. And I, and I, and I, and as I said, the, the happiest I am um, is when I'm, I'm giving, giving, um, inspiring others and, 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 and living beyond myself. Mm. And that is a really interesting point there. It's something that I've sort of worked through, I guess, through philosophy is that, you know, if everyone's, in the middle thinking about if you imagine kind of concentric circles just me and what i can do for myself mm. and my life and how i can have a great time whatever then we're basically fucked mm. um, and the wider the circles where you can think about your family your community or 
you know, company or whatever it may be, yeah. and maybe humanity. Yes. Um, about this new planet yes then then basically that we got a chance you know in in surviving as a human race yes. and um and yeah i guess enjoying the journey a bit yes and that's why that's really why that's what the heart of satalia's purpose is that to try to help people not just focus on themselves and uh, and in, in any way to be able to contribute positively somehow to to outside of themselves whether it be to mm. humanity or whether it should be their neighbor um and i and i think that if we're able to unlock the potential of everybody on the planet because most of the people on the planet are just trying to survive mm, and uh, but if we can if we can change that somehow then uh, then i think that we can collectively um collaborate to, to to solving some of the risks that we're facing around the environment the economy uh and technological risks like super intelligence and things like that but we have to work have to start working as a species and we have to start to utilize the creative capacity of as many people thanks for tuning in to the conscious leaders podcast i've been ruth Fringer, founder of mindful pathway if you want to find out more about us and how we help leaders create space to lead effectively through coaching and training visit mindfulpathway.co.uk for the podcast you can subscribe on itunes spotify or listen via the website mindfulpathway.co.uk forward slash podcasts